Hello, you are listening to Gradcast, the official podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And today we're sitting down with Jeffrey Hutchinson to talk a little bit about physiology. So Jeff, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your work and who you are. Hey, hi, uh, my name is Jeff Hutchinson. I work in the second laboratory in the Department of Physiology and Pharmacology, studying the intervertebral disc and the effect of steroid hormones on IVD health. Cool. Uh, <laughs> um, that sounds like a, a somewhat complicated project. Uh, why don't you tell us, um, as you're a PhD, a PhD student, you've got you know your main thrust of your work. What's the... Um, What's the model that you're working with, I suppose? So I work with mice and bovine cells. So mouse cell culture and organ culture, which is just taking out separate intervertebral discs at different layers of the spine, and then growing them in culture and treating them with different drugs, or just pure cell culture, as well as in vivo mouse models is my future aims in my research, is looking at disc degeneration in a mouse model and how steroid hormones may alter disc degeneration and the whole like pathology of disdegeneration. So you've used a couple of terms there, um, and I'm wondering if we can unpack them a little bit. Disc degeneration, try to say that 10 times fast, and in vivo mouse. So I'm just wondering if you can give us a little bit, uh, back us up a bit and, and talk, talk us through those terms. Sure, sure. So the intervertebral disc, as some may know, is the, it's the cartilage joint between vertebral bodies of the spine. So it's just the joint that allows motion of the spine and does shock absorption when we walk or like anytime you're doing any kind of exercise. Um, over time or with trauma, it can degenerate. And what that means is it gets reduced height and loses its mechanical properties. So it doesn't allow for that proper shock absorption anymore. So degeneration is really prevalent with people with back pain. So back pain affects about 80% of people over their lifetime. And 40% of those cases are actually attributed to intervertebral disc degeneration. And what happens in those cases is that when the disc starts to degenerate, so it loses some of its proteins and water inside of it that acts as like a shock absorber, it starts to shrink and then it can tear. And then nerves and vasculature, so blood vessels, can grow into the disc and cause pain. So, and then the other question you asked was in vivo mouse models. So that's just a term we use for saying like a living model. So something that's mm -hmm. not like cell culture or something where you're just looking at cells or just one specific tissue type. We're looking at how these hormones may affect dysbiology over the whole animal. Okay. So pr presumably, I mean, I, it's a good, uh, it seems like a, an important project, certainly because it uh, impacts so many people with back pain. I feel like my back hurts and I'm not even that old yet. And <laughs> a lot of people are clearly impacted by this kind of thing. Um, uh, my question is what, where did you kind of start in this? I'm just trying to go through your journey is you, you've got these multiple models. Um, what was your, what was your first model and, and, uh, how did you actually go about doing that? Okay, so my first model was organ culture, uh, which was just taking out one disc and growing it in culture with these hormones. And just to, to clarify why we're using the hormones at all, my co-supervisor is a, a neuroradiologist 
at the London Health Services Center. And he was looking at patients who came to the hospital for MRI and CT scans of their spine, and they were suspected steroid users, and they had increased disc height in their spine, which is like crazy. You never really see increased disc height ever. You always see decrease due to age and trauma. So th that correlation led us to believe that, okay, maybe there's some relationship between disc growth and then steroid use. So that kind of led me to the organ culture model where if I could just take a disc and treat it with steroids, what does it do? What does the tissue itself do in response to those hormones? So that was kind of the beginning of my project. And what do you think causes increased disc growth um, in humans? You were mentioning that your supervisor um, had experienced this when working as a neuroradiologist at the hospital and seen quite a number of patients with this. So what do you think is causing that or what might you predict is causing that? Well, I think it's a rare finding. So like, I, I think, and we don't really know, I've, I've read some papers that looked at like national uh, football players who've had increased disc height and they don't know if it's genetic or steroid abuse because it's kind of a touchy subject. People don't really want to admit to using steroids. Um, if I had to guess, and what our hypothesis is, is that the proteins that make up the, the large core of the disc, they attract water and they regulate disc height in a very large way. So my hypothesis is that steroids are causing an increase in production of those proteins and causing increased water retention in the disc and then increasing height. So you're, so you're taking these discs out of mice, is that right? Yes, that's correct, mice, yeah. And these mouse discs, you're then bathing in all sorts of things, steroids for one, yep. uh, that you suspect um, some people might be using illicitly or illicitly, however, and might explain this uh, increase, uh, odd finding of increased disc height. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I guess, um, um, I don't know if you mentioned it, but you mentioned like hormones, right? Yep. Um, as I, I'm not really sure, like, what, what steroids, I guess <laughs> I'm thinking when, when people take steroids, like they're taking like growth hormone or something for, for working out to get more muscles, to be better athlete or something like that. So, so what hormones are we talking about? And then I guess, could you maybe get into, um, different sex hormones as well and how that might play? Sure. Yeah. It? Okay. So what I'm using right now, I use testosterone, dihydrotestosterone, estrogen, and growth hormones. So I use quite a few. So testosterone is just the regular male androgen sex hormone. And that's known for causing like muscle growth and like sexual development, all those sorts of things. And then dihydrotestosterone is just another metabolite of testosterone that's actually more potent. And it causes it like a higher response that testosterone normally would. And then estrogen is the female sex hormone, but it also, it's obviously in men too, same as testosterone is also in women. And there's been a lot of studies right now that look at estrogen as a protector against disc degeneration. So that's kind of why I threw that in there. We're looking at all of those hormones effects kind of pull it together because there may be sex specific effects. Like these hormones may affect males differently than they affect females. And that's important. So, and then growth hormone was kind of a, looped in there because of what these football players and these athletes saw, because that's a common ergogenic aid that people add into testosterone and other like aids that they use for subcutaneous injection and all sorts of things. And why um, are mice 
being used to test um, this disk growth? Is there a specific reason that you're using mice? There are a lot of good reasons we use mice. One of them is just that they're super efficient. Um, you can use a lot of mice and, and they're easy to house, they're easy to study. All of the tests and things are already built and we can order things like readily available to work with mice. And it's not just that it's super easy to work with them. They also have like similar properties, like mechanical loading of the discs has been shown to be similar for quadrupeds compared to bipeds. So four-legged animals versus mm -hmm. two-legged animals like us, yep. because the amount of like pressure that a mouse has to exert on its spine sideways to hold the discs at a proper level orientation has been shown to be similar to what we do as we walk. So there, there's not just the efficiency of it, but also that it's a, it's a good model to use because the mechanical loading is similar and the tissues very similar. There's a different number, but. You know, usually we don't uh, like try to inject our own opinion that much. I want to leave the whole story to you, but I thought um, it also, I think is worth saying that um, as we build more techniques for these animal models like mice, um, we get more efficient at it. So that means we're not shooting in the dark and we don't have to actually use as, as many animals. So if you had to do this study on a, a rare guinea pig from Malaysia, we don't know much about it. There's a lot of preliminary work you need to do to work it out and you need more animals. So mice specifically is like the most common model in the world. We know a lot about it. So you probably need less uh, preamble troubleshooting kind of work to do that work as well. Yeah, exactly. There are limitations too as well, because uh, due to size, when I go to work with cell culture, there's less cells available for doing that. So one of the things I'm adding in right now is bovine, so cow cell culture. And I'm going to add in, hopefully, bovine organ culture as well to my project, because bovine cells and the organ itself are actually very, very similar to humans as far as cellularity and the different like, cellular groups that are within that disc compared to humans, it's actually even better than the mouse model. And cow intervertebral discs are readily available, so. Well, that, that's interesting. So um, I guess I'm wondering when you, when you say you, you look at, at these discs, be it bovine from cows or mice, uh, and you're putting all these treatments on, you said you're, you're trying to measure kind of like, does it get thicker? Like, like, uh, like it was like it was in those in those athletes uh but are there other measures what are you looking at exactly in these bovine and mouse discs so as of right now what i'm trying to look at is changes in gene expression so does in like the exposure of these hormones alter the way these cells react so do they increase their expression of certain proteins whether they're good proteins like the proteins that cause water retention or ones that cause degeneration of the tissue so I'm looking at gene expression and eventually protein expression. And then I also use histological analysis. So I section the tissue and I image it under a microscope and I look at just the whole structure of it. Does it change? Does it look more swollen? Do like, does it appear to have more cells than controls? So I'm looking at any kind of change just on a, like a beginning level to see like if there's any Oh, sorry, go ahead. Visually looking at like the structure. That's what you mean when you say histology, right? Yeah, yeah, it's visual. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two parts. There's just the, the gene expression, protein expression, and then there's the visual part through histology. And then eventually when I get to an in vivo mouse model, so a living animal with this generation, 
that's when we can start looking at things like biomechanics. So does spine loading differ? Does the stiffness of the spine differ between animals that are just control animals, ones who have disdegeneration and ones with disdegeneration treated with hormones, that sort of thing. So you kind of, you might've touched on this a little bit, but I'm, I'm just thinking about like discs in, you know, a cow versus a mouse. And there's probably a lot of differences, but I'm betting there might even be some similarities. Can you take us through a couple of differences and similarities? Sure, sure. Um, so size is a huge thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so the mouse, like the mouse intervertebral disc, just so you guys can get in an image of it in your head. I would imagine like a grain of sea salt. Like That's it's small, it's pretty small. Like we, we do the dissection under a microscope, like it's very tiny. Whereas a bovine one is probably the size of your thumbnail. Wow. And yeah, so it's not too crazy, but it's still much bigger. And uh, the cellularity for mice and bovine intervertebral discs are slightly different at the core. So the bovine one, so I should explain, the intervertebral disc is three separate like tissue types. Anchoring against the bone on the top and bottom, there's cartilage. And then there's a fibrous part that goes vertically along the spine axis. And at the core, that's the protein and water mixture that I was talking about that helps with the shock absorption. So the cells in that core in the bovine model or in the cow model are more similar to the human ones because we have notochordal cells in humans, sort of bovines. So um, I, I, I'm trying to like visualize this in my mind. Sure. And I guess uh, I, I'm trying to think of something that I can compare it to, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, as it is spooktober, uh, we're all we're all seeing <laughs> uh, skeleton type things for Halloween. Uh, so I'm imagining a skeleton in front of me of like a human skeleton and, and where you've got those like their 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 spine and there's all those uh, bones in the spine. Is it, it it's like inside that the spine is like covering those discs? Is that right? It's like the middle part inside. It, yeah, it, it's the column of your spine uh, that, so that, that the ribs come off of. Mm -hmm. So, so it, within those, yeah, inside of those bones, there, that's where yeah. the actual discs are. Because I, because when you said, um, you know, I, I work with mice, and you said the, you said the, the disc is so small. I'm like, I can feel their spine. It, it's not that small. So it's, it's not the bone. It's it's, it's in, inside. Between it's between the, the between the bones. Yeah. Okay. So in. Like when you cut them out, like it differs where you look in the spine too. Like the thoracic discs or in like the rib cage area are much smaller than the lumbar or even the tail, right? So it does differ in size based on where you go. But yeah, it's so if you imagine like your spine is like a string, imagine you just start drawing little black lines across the string, those black lines would be the intervertebral discs. Okay. And just to imagine the structure a bit better, I always like to think of a Boston cream donut with chocolate on the top and bottom oh. because then that's how I imagine it. So the, the chocolate part is the cartilage that anchors it to the bone on the top and bottom. And then like the donut part is just the fibrous tissue that kind of holds it all together. And then the cream is that like hydrous and protein content that allows for the squishiness of it. If that can help visualize it. That helps a lot. That's awesome. <laughs> So we're all very hungry now. Thank you. Um, but that, that was very helpful. You know, just um, I'm always curious, not not being in the sciences, how um, sort of how, how these, these mice are, are stored and how 
how you how you come to acquire them? Is there is there a a way that that you get them to the lab and and get them safely to the lab? And how does that all work? So Western has an animal facility that we use that's like a very high standards in how we take care of the animals and how they're transported between buildings. And then we do like animal use protocols that allow us to safely like move the animals and test them and all these sorts of things. So Western has standards for all of that. So, and, and uh, you know, there's repositories all around the world where they're, you know, breeding uh, mice for all sorts of purposes. So presumably yeah, yeah. in your case, you're using a, 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 what we might call, some might call a wild type strain. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I use like a Charles River strain. So it's called CD1 laboratory mouse. Yeah. So it's presumably a, a somewhat normal mouse. Doesn't, doesn't have any, anything super irregular, no genetic, uh, crazy genetic alterations, right? No, no, it's standard. Yes. Right. Um, uh, so just want to broaden out again. You said you, you, you've got your culture and now you interestingly are doing your bovine and mouse culture of these discs and you're learning a lot about them and you're imaging them and you're looking at a gene expressions and lo learning lots of cool things. And then presumably you want to take what you're learning and then apply, do some uh, applications to this uh, in vivo live mouse. Um, what do you want to look at in, in, in live mice? I would like to look at the effect of these hormones in a healthy model and also a degeneration model. So I want to see if we can recapitulate what we saw in those steroid users. Mm -hmm. But also I want to see just for like practical application of it, if what happened in the football player is true or just partially true, it might be a novel treatment option for people with disc degeneration. So can we inject hormones into someone's degenerative disc and help relieve pain? Which is actually really interesting because there's clinics who are using injection of growth hormone and testosterone to reduce patient pain. So there was a couple of case studies that showed that patients had reduced back pain after these injections. So no one studied the biology of that though. So it's a kind of this really interesting spot we're in where we're going to look at the biology of it and figure out what's actually going on and make sure it's actually a good thing too. So that's why I want to look at just health and the degenerative model. So that's my goal. Where exactly are the hormones being injected, like right into the disc or is it injected into the, into the body and then the hormones just sort of make their way through the bloodstream to, to deal with the pain? To help so that's a, that's a great question. Um, for steroid users, like football players and things, it's usually like a subcutaneous, just like just beneath the skin or it's through IV. But for these people who are getting treated for back pain, it's just a, a subcutaneous injection under the skin, like near the source of back pain in the back. Mm, so, so uh, yeah, so just like kind of a, kind of a suit high level, like you don't have to go that deep. You just maybe inject kind of near or right into the blood, like with the IV, yeah. right? Yeah. It, the ideal thing would be to go as close as you can, or if not in the intervertebral disc, because it's avascular. So there's no blood vessels in the disc. All of the nutrient and waste transport is done through the motion of the disc. So as you walk and compress your discs, that's actually what causes the movement of nutrients and waste. So if you were to get something in there, it's not like it's going to leach out much slower than if you just put it through your whole body because obviously we know testosterone and all these hormones, if you have like an excess of them, it's not exactly good for you. 
there's a lot of nasty side effects that come with testosterone use. So thinking of a way to treat people with this, if it does work, is a whole other ballgame. Um, uh, like a lot of these hormones that you that you discussed, you know, are things that we produce typically normally, like there's endogenous hormones and people are taking, you know, extra amounts of it and, and injecting it in. And that's sort of what you're, you're recapitulating here. Uh, I'm wondering also like the sensitivity to those, those hormones and the sex effects. So uh, if in your live mice or even in your, in your culture models, are you actually using uh, male and female cows, male and female mice? Yep. Yeah, we have. So we've been doing most of our work so far on male just to start because we're just segmenting it and just for time. Right. But yeah, we do plan on looking at male and female and how they respond to each of the sex hormones and in what quantity too. It's really interesting. You bring that up because uh, humans, as we age, when we go through adrenal pause or menopause, so adrenal pause is just the, the reduced uh, like expression and release of steroid hormones as we get older. So we like men stop producing as much testosterone. It's just like, it's a linear decrease over time. And then women, when they hit menopause, they decrease their estrogen and progesterone production like a lot. And right around like the 50 year old age, that's when you start to see a lot of disc degeneration and back pain in these people, which is really interesting because it's kind of saying, are these hormones protective or is something going on that like maybe these hormones are helping something else, something else's expression to help prevent back pain and disc degeneration, which is really interesting and kind of a cool model I'd like to look at too. And what do you think or what do you predict is the answer? Well, I'm really hopeful that it's just the, the decrease in estrogen and testosterone over time is kind of reducing the protectiveness towards this generation. And then you're seeing all of the phenotypes really related to age. And maybe with supplements, you might not see that phenotype anymore. It might stop. But that's a, a wild guess, right? Well, this, this is all uh, really in, interesting and engaging, intriguing kind of work. Uh, it seems real visceral. Um, <laughs> I think everybody can feel their body at all times. And everybody knows that feeling when you like make a wrong turn and your back hurts and it's really bad. And everybody's like, if I can avoid that forever, that would be amazing. <laughs> so uh, certainly I think most people are uh, invested mentally in you working this out and getting it right. Um, I'm wondering... Where did you start in this journey? How did you stumble upon this, uh, this type of research and what interested you to begin with? That's a great question. So I was actually in my undergrad and I was taking a, a fourth year cell bio course, really interesting. Um, and we were looking at just like wound healing and all these sorts of interesting processes. And every Friday we would have a guest lecturer and my current supervisor came in and did a lecture on back pain and what her first PhD student did and all of his research as far as like disgeneration and like mapping out the fate of different cells in the intervertebral disc. And that's what really drove me to get into this because I thought, wow, like pain is such an interesting thing and it affects so many people. And if you can do something that has an impact, that's, that's huge. I, I find it. Um, I find it sometimes when you're like uh, working on something anything that you, you, you see the similarities in your own life and it's difficult to like dissociate. You're like, Hmm, maybe should I be adopting this, this new finding? I know it's not like clinically approved or something, but like if I'm my back kind of hurts and I'm working on this thing that 
it looks like it's helping with back pain. Like might I find, I'm going to go find a doctor to help me get this. How's your back? Uh, do you ever, you ever think about that? <laughs> I, I have thought about it. I would never recommend to anyone getting. So like, that's a tricky question. Cause if you, these, these clinical studies have shown that people are getting these injections and feeling better, but there's no biology supporting that. So as far as we right now, know right now, this could be a placebo. So there is some danger to this, I would say, because it could be making it worse and we don't know. And like, if that is true, this project's just as interesting because we have a whole lot of people who are supplementing for lots of reasons, whether it's health or for sports, and they need to know. How often do people have to get these injections? Is it like a one-time shot deal, uh, no pun intended, or is it on an ongoing basis? As far as I know, it was an ongoing thing. So they ran the trial for a certain amount of time, getting these injections on regular intervals, mm -hmm. and it differed between studies. And then as soon as their back pain was gone, they stopped getting them. So, and it didn't help everyone, but it did help a, a significant portion of them. Um, I think I think it's uh, worth taking a, a, just a quick uh, step back again to what you had said a second ago about the placebo effect, um, because you know I, I know just like you, I'm very excited about my own research as we as all of us grad students are, and it's it's easy to to think like hmm, you know I don't know about the biology here, but I'm looking at this effect. Uh, maybe I want to adopt this myself. But you mentioned the placebo effect is like one reason and explain that might be counter to the mechanisms that you suspect. Right. Um, yeah. and you also mentioned, you know, like the side effects of, of people taking these, uh, hormones. So can you maybe just kind of give us the opposite argument? Like, why would you not want to do this? <laughs> uh, just if you felt back pain right now? <laughs> well, I, I think that if you're getting these injections and you have no idea what they do biologically, that that is dangerous because what if they're inducing the expression of things that break down your disc or for example testosterone and all these like growth hormone and stuff as an adult and if you're not like having low doses of it already like if you have a low endogenous amount that's different but most people don't they're regular and if you take an excess you can start damaging tissues of your body so the heart in particular is really sensitive to excess testosterone and you see a lot of athletes end up having heart attacks from testosterone exposure and abuse so I would say that it's a dangerous thing to say, okay, yeah, this, this one study showed it worked because we like injected it into these people and they felt better, but there is a, a huge field right now talking about like treatment is sometimes helpful, whether the treatment actually did what they thought it did or not, just getting treated can help. I guess that points to the fact that like pain management is generally difficult because it's, it can be psychosomatic so that like it's they have something psychologically happening that's that's manifesting as physical pain elsewhere uh it, it, despite there no not actually ha nothing physically happening to that part of the body yeah that's actually a really interesting thing we discuss in our lab all the time is about how um if you take someone with back pain and you do imaging on them whether it's mri or ct and you look at their spine it might be completely normal there might not be anything there and then you might have the next person you image them and they have so much stuff going on. Like they might have multiple discs that are degenerative and they might not have any pain. So pain is a really interesting thing because it, it affects some people when the, it appears that nothing's going on and it affects others, not at all. And they might have lots of things where we'd normally say, Oh yeah, that person's going to be in a lot of pain. 
So there's definitely some psychological things there. And there's also a lot of things we don't understand. And that must make it really hard to treat and diagnose if, if you're coming in and you're indicating that you're experiencing pain as a patient and then the imaging says, well, there's nothing wrong. It's hard to sort of pre prepare a treatment plan based on um, no evidence. So that must be a really difficult situation for parents, or sorry, for patients and, and healthcare providers as well. Yeah, for sure it will be too. Um, I think that's another interesting thing that I might want to tackle with my like mouse model later on, like the in vivo model, looking at like a bunch of different things like muscle and the bone around the intervertebral disc, all the accessory tissues that are related to pain in the back. And maybe there's going to be something there that's also related to, to testosterone and estrogen and growth hormone. And maybe there will be, maybe that'll help. Maybe it'll find something. So um, we're just we're just wrapping up uh, in terms of time here, but it's been really interesting to hear about your work and where you where you're going with this project, um, and it's exciting exciting stuff. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's psychologically, <laughs> gra uh, uh, grad school can be painful because <laughs> uh, it's difficult. It's a lot of work, but it's 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 less painful when you're really interested in it and engaged in it, and you clearly are. So um, I'm glad uh, that we had you here to talk about it. Thank you. It was nice being on. <laughs> uh, can you, uh, before you go, can you just maybe point people in the direction of like, they want to find out more about what you're doing and what your lab does? Sure. Yeah. So our laboratory has a website. If you look on the Schulich website, you can look up Dr. Cheryl Sagan and her laboratory and all of us and all of the spine researchers are there. And there's a brief synopsis of what each of us do. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You've been listening to GradCast, the podcast and radio show of the Society of Graduate Students. I've been your host, Elizabeth Muller. My co-host was Ariel Frame, and we were interviewing Jeff today, learning all about the spine and its wonderful ways of moving. If you want to know more about us, you can get to us by going to gradcast.ca or you can email us gradcastradio at gmail.com. Maybe you want to listen to this episode and select other episodes again. You can do that by popping onto our YouTube channel and you can listen to us on the radio. And until then, see you later and have a good night. <laughs>